My name is David Orban, and I am very glad to have uh, all of you uh, following the show. Uh, before we start, I want to remind you that uh, even if uh, we are live, you can always watch past episodes of uh, Searching for the Question live, both on Facebook and on YouTube. And uh, of course, on YouTube, you can also uh, subscribe uh, to the channel. Uh, we also have a Discord community, and uh, you are welcome to join there in order to continue the conversations uh, around the themes uh, that uh, we cover. And, uh, and finally, uh, if you find the, the, the show uh, valuable, um, you are welcome uh, to become a, a fan, a supporter, a sponsor, or a, a benefactor uh, on Patreon at patreon.com slash David Orban. Uh, today's guest uh, is uh, Michelle Bowens. And um, uh, Michelle and I have been uh, uh, communicating and uh, conversing in, in various ways for, for a few years. Uh, uh, Michelle is uh, a Belgian peer-to-peer uh, theorist and uh, and a very prolific uh, writer, researcher uh, on the subject of uh, technology, culture, and and business innovation. Peer to peer theory is a is a new and emerging field, um, and uh, his uh, uh, inclusive home for conducting uh, the research is the peer to peer foundation, uh, where. Um, the collaboration in exploring uh, uh, peer production and uh, the reason why the commons uh, matter is uh, very, very uh, active. Um, now, the reasons why peer-to-peer -peer and, and the commons matter will be the heart of, of our conversation. And uh, I, I believe it is uh, today an especially uh, important uh, subject. Today, uh, during the pandemic, and as we uh, start to try to understand uh, what the world should look like uh, after it, uh, we need uh, really to embrace new kinds of thinking. And uh, uh, I uh, fully believe that Michelle represents an important contribution to this uh, new kind of thinking. So, Michelle, uh, welcome to Searching for the Question Live. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm really honored. Uh, you know, I've also been following you, uh, your work and, and uh, so I, I'm kind of happy that this is happening here. So uh, one one wonderful um, component of of your life is uh, that you are bicontinental. Uh, you spend uh, uh, this this is where we are in in Bergamo now, and you are in Belgium during the winter. But summertime you you migrate, if I understand. And uh, right now we are jumping over to Chiang Mai, where you are in 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 Thailand, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Ch uh, Chiang Mai is uh, in northern Thailand, uh, you know, close to the uh, what is the the end of the Tibetan Burman Plateau. So it's kind of the end of the Himalayas. Um, it's, um, we're not very high anymore; it's about seven hundred meters. But it's uh, kind of a, a town that is a bit famous. Uh, it's called the Rose of the North. It's a bit like uh, you know Bruges and Ghent in the Middle Ages. It has uh, you know hundreds of uh, monasteries and and it has a wall. Uh, so it has a medieval city center. And paradoxically, it has become the capital of uh, digital nomads, uh, at least until COVID came along. Uh, so there is a Facebook group with 25,000 digital nomads that exchange tips with each other about living here. You know, so there's this whole circuit of people that go to Medellin and Tenerife and, and different places where, because these are the people who are independent of place and they can work on their computers. And so the quality of life here is uh, quite exceptional. And and uh, I learned about uh, Chiang Mai exactly through that uh, because uh, now I am um, happily stuck in my wonderful home in Italy and have been for the past uh, uh, seven months. But uh, 
uh, before I would indeed uh, travel a lot and uh, just like you I can I can work uh, anywhere or wherever the next conference is uh, and um, there is a website called the nomad list and uh, nomad list uh, ranks uh, the places for the best um, uh, overall quality across many many different indicators and and right. Chiang Mai for me was also surprising because i didn't know about it uh, at the top uh, at yeah. least uh, at least at the time um and and uh, um you 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 discovered it uh, uh, on your own independently from the digital nomad uh, wave uh, or even before yes i well i you know i i went on a trip and i met somebody as often happens around here uh and uh, so i was basically kidnapped and um and ended up wanted to live here because it's um you know if you're european uh, this is a very rich place in terms of contrast you know and and the typical thing about this country is it wasn't never never colonized so it has kept much more of its kind of original culture and ways of life ways of thinking that even the neighbors would have because they've been colonized by france or britain so that makes the country a bit unique. So the kind of mix of pre-modern, modern, and post-modern, when the three are alive. So it's not like in Italy where you can find, you know, beautiful medieval cities, but outside of the mountains, uh, maybe in the south of Italy, you 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 won't find people who still live and think that way. And um, so that was that's what makes the, the place attractive and 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 the slow pace of life the extraordinary level of you know friendliness in the culture um and so in a certain way because you know if you can earn your money through your digital work then the arbitrage between the earning and the cost of living here is advantages yes uh, for people like me um and so it's used by these digital nomads as a, a way to obtain more freedom because um you know, for example, we have people here, or used to have, I, I don't know if they're still here, but uh, from the Mozilla Foundation, you know, they were making about 4,000 bucks a month, but only spending 1,000. So that means that every month you're working, you can put 3,000 aside. And what then allows them to, you know, work on their open source projects of their own choosing. Uh, and the same happened with crypto. I actually went to a meeting where, um, a crypto person called uh, Griff Green, if I remember it correctly, said the problem in Chiang Mai is that we cannot we cannot find people who want to work for money. <laughs> uh, of course, that's true in that environment. It wasn't wouldn't be true for everyone, but in that environment, because so many people have been successful, you know, early investors in Bitcoin and and Ethereum, so there is here a group of people that basically practices what i study which is passionate peer production right mm. because they they're kind of like a labor aristocracy and i've always been a big fan of this notion so except for example if you look at the history of the labor movement in the 19th century yeah that wasn't done by the landless peasants who, who came in the city and and were completely lost it came because of the guild workers that still had a historical memory of self-organization and so they were the ones behind the, the unions and, and all these popular movements uh, because they, they were educated, they had higher wages. So I think today there's something similar going on with the people in the crypto world. Uh, you know, and they have their kind of libertarian, egalitarian uh, philosophy. And so once they kind of free themselves from, you know, the struggle for income, they start really implementing a lot of ideas that other people cannot afford to implement because they are too busy surviving. You see what I and, mean? And and one of the reasons why that is uh, so beautiful is because uh, money by itself stops being uh, a, a reason for a project to be attractive. Exactly. Uh, and and uh, eliminating that uh, leverage, uh, you can better compare uh, project for their positive impact on society and the world. Yeah, and and yeah, and that is the talent uh, accruing to the better projects out of those parameters, rather than the financial incentive. 
just just yesterday i saw this uh, thing called mega game i think a mega fam which is like a, a new blockchain kind of network for uh workers who are organizing a guild i think it's called the the raid guild and so i very much believe in these things you know like we have the territorial level we have the nation state level uh and right now what we need is planetary guilds we we need people to organize at a meta local level um you know not against the local because it's very important to to be in a healthy environment and to have local food and all of that that's that's important uh, but in terms of knowledge you know we have to scale and so the idea of a planetary guild is something that appeals a lot to me because it creates this third level transnational translocal which is not capital so we're not talking about global capital and we're not talking about the global state yeah we're talking about the global civic uh into entrepreneurship in a way right these are not projects that aim primarily to make money they they are mission oriented purpose driven uh and so they have high ethical goals and they have and because they're highly evolved technically they're not weak they are actually a strong you know faction in the world so i find that interesting uh, let, in terms of you know historical actor at this moment let, let's go there and let's uh, uh, look at that but before we do that i would like to ask you two things uh, one to tell us a little bit about your personal journey of how did you discover and decided that you want to embrace uh, this particular field of study and the second uh, if you don't mind uh, to draw uh, a short uh, historical arch uh, so that those yes. uh, viewers that are not familiar with uh, with the topic of the comments and peer-to-peer -peer production can have a better context uh, and understanding of of how it evolved and and how we are uh, where we are today so so why don't you tell us uh, about yourself yeah. first Okay, I'll, I'll be kind of brief about my own journey because uh, <laughs> I want to talk about the other thing. Uh, but briefly, I had a big burnout in my mid-30s, mid-40s, that was like in the mid-90s. Um, and at the same time, I was really seeing that, you know, all the alarm bells were going uh, off, you know, in terms of planetary boundaries, peak resources, um, climate change. And at the same time, there was a revival in the mid '90s of civic movements. You know, the alter globalization movements, the Zapatistas, and I was working. Uh, I was an internet entrepreneur, and after my burnout, I decided to. Uh, I became a strategy director for a large uh, telco in Belgium. But I just, I just didn't like it anymore. I said, you know, this, these people, who only think about the short term, you know, about the next three months uh and don't care what is happening to the planet and and also internally i felt the you know the kind of internal psyche of the corporation was getting uh, very pressured very stress driven and so I kind of felt you know i have to get out of here uh, uh and so i took a two-year sabbatical and i studied historical transitions so i wanted to know okay if we want to change today and you know, given that the communist project uh, failed, uh, what we, what what do we do today? How do we change society? And I looked at uh, you know different these transition moments, like the end of the Roman Empire, the age of revolutions in the 18th century, um, and I came out with a particular vision, uh, which is basically answering now your second question. So we could look at history as you know kind of subject to waves uh, so it's actually called wave pulse theory technically and so imagine this you have a particular form of class society and you repeat, and you repeat wave what wave pulse so okay. imagine a wave and then it goes over the top and then it has a pulse which pushes it to go in the other direction so it's kind of a, between polarities and so you have the extractive polarity the degradative degradative polarity and you have the regenerative polarity so what tends to happen is that competing societies tend to overuse their territorial planetary boundaries because they're in a competitive game and they have to win um and at a certain moment 
that no longer works. They have depleted their own uh, area and they start weakening instead of getting stronger. And so you kind of have a collapse, uh, some kind of you know breakdown, and then starts actually the other polarity, which is, which is you know how are we going to solve uh, what is happening to us? And what I'm claiming is that the commons. So the principle of a mutualization is the key to the regenerative uh, period. So I'll, I'll give you an example so you can, you and your, your uh, listeners can understand this. So uh, I think it happened, for example, in the 12th century in Japan. So the whole country was degraded and deforested. Yeah. So what happens is um, basically the power structure changed. There was a religious reformation. And in that time, religions were the kind of vehicle for this, right? We have to be more harmonious with nature. We have to be more nature, more harmonious between people. So we need another type of, of, of regime. And so basically the emperor took uh, power and controlled the, the land and it functioned as a commons. It could no longer just be exploited. Uh, and so you would go back three centuries after that and you would see that Japan is completely green, right? So in other words, the principle of the commons of mutualization um, is what healed the society. And of course, what's happening now is that, uh, you know, Western humanity thought that we had escaped this cycle because of the efficiency of capitalism and, and new energies. And it turns out that the only thing we've done is kind of put it on hold for four centuries and arrived at a, a level of planetary overshoot. And so my claim is that we have to go now into a, a regenerative modality. Uh, and that means we have to honor the commons. So we have to develop a society and economics as if the commons mattered. And so, uh, it's not uh, so I, easy I, because the, the West forget about the West forgot about the commons, basically. I, I, I have a remark and then and then two uh two questions. Uh, uh, I think a, an important consideration is that going into the second phase of regeneration uh, is not at all guaranteed uh, it is no. necessary but if we look at easter uh, uh, island uh, where uh, we now uh, presume a collapse was caused by uh, ecological uh, degradation yeah. it wasn't just possible because uh, having uh, uh, completely uh, cut down their trees uh, uh, the uh, climate was such that the soil got eroded. And so yeah. even if uh, at the time people could have uh, realized that the tree trees were the key and wanted to plant them again, it would have taken just too long for the soil to regrow uh, uh, before the trees could have taken, uh, taken roots. And as a consequence, um the uh, the the aboriginous population of of uh, easter island uh went extinct um and and a little bit is what we are running the risk uh, of of uh, going against today uh the planet is an island uh, there is no new continent whose resources we can uh, uh despoil and deplete in order to support uh, the unsustainable yeah. way of life of uh, of uh, the, the the stronger continent, uh, and and as a consequence, we have to wake up to the need of a fundamental reorganization of society on a planetary scale, not even society of civilization of human civilization. Totally. On a planetary yeah, I fully scale. agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Now, now, one question I have um, around this is uh, in this um, pulse wave theory or wave pulse theory of history um what role uh, do you see uh technology playing yes well so i know this may sound contradictory and maybe not what your audience uh, wants to hear but I, I think technology is is not primary uh technology is not neutral either it's it's the result of a particular form of society, which then chooses particular forms of technology that fit with its ideals and, and, and priorities. I, I, I love it because it is exactly the opposite of my point of view. 
just <laughs> polar opposite of my point of view, yeah. where I, I exactly say the same words in the reverse order. What I say <laughs> is that technology causes society to adopt the a given shape. So let's let's look at this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm just going to first acknowledge the you know the relative truth of what you're saying, which is of course technology has a certain autonomy. But I want to give you a very concrete example so that people understand what I'm saying. Uh, so the internet, um, in my understanding, was actually started by military research, and it was a non-commissioned officers who said to their bosses, you know, if there's war, nuclear war, we can't communicate with you, so you have to make sure that we can communicate amongst each other. Uh, about you know the surviving pockets uh, in a nuclear uh, war, and so that was the beginning. And then as they started to do that with DARPA, you know some scientists heard about it, and they actually started to pull cables on those projects. Um, and so you see what I mean. So there was another group of civil scientists which then started using the technology. And by the time that I was uh, discovering the internet in the late. 80s and the early 90s, that was actually the case. So it was a scientific thing um, and it had a scientific uh, ideology, right? And then came the web, uh, the web, and suddenly people from the outside, citizens, could start using um, the internet. And then suddenly, because all these people were there, business was saying, hmm, we can make money there. And then so we had the web 2.0, which was kind of the business takeover. And then third, you know, the, the, the governments were saying, oh, something is happening that we need, you know, we can't lose control of this. So what I'm saying is that if you look at the internet, it's a layered thing. It's not one group that dominate everything all the time, but it is, you know, these different groups will think differently and then they will design. So the original peer-to-peer -peer design, which was, you know, exactly designed to avoid control, once you got Facebook and YouTube and private owners that want to control and, create scarcity to make a market, well, they're going to do client server and centralized servers. And so that's what I'm trying to say. So technology is not some magical thing that works on its own. It's also driven by ideals, interests, you know, uh, etc. And so what I'm trying to say is that if we change the structure of society, we will also very much likely think differently about about technology. So the example I gave in the beginning of our talk was how these libertarian developers, you know, which are at the same time pro-market, but also very much pro-equality, they kind of combine these things. And, and I'm not in agreement with the libertarian ideology myself, but, you know, I, I respect them and, and I, I find it interesting what they're doing. So that when, you know, when they're free and they have the money, which they now have because of the crypto, well, what are they doing? They're creating decentralized structures again, right? Uh, but what they're not is they're actually hardly ecologically conscious. This, this is not a particular, you know, ecologically conscious group. So they don't really care about nature. But if we can have a project, and I, I might give you an example. This is one of the projects that I, I really like. It's called, so it's R3.0, Reporting 3.0. And they have this uh, thing which is called the Global Thresholds and Allocations Council. Okay, so what, what does it mean? It, it, what they want to do, and they, they already have funding for this, so they're doing it experimentally, is set up a group of scientists who just monitor the availability of natural resources. So how much copper is there in the world? What's the uh, biocircularity of copper? So it's, I think it's about 70% if you reuse it. Um, yeah. Um, you're very fast. <laughs> and uh, so imagine that you have this, and then you can actually pull it downward into shared distributed ledgers. Yeah. So I published a report last year, which is called P2P Accounting for Planetary Survival, which looks at all the innovations in forms of uh, new accounting. So we have contributory accounting. Contributory accounting is what open source communities do when they want to recognize contributions that are not recognized by the market. So they say, okay, you know, we're working together on this, but the market only recognizes this little part of what we're doing. So we're going to redistribute internally 
um, according different criteria, the income that we are generating. The second form of accounting, which is emerging right now, is called flow accounting, uh, REA, resources, events, agents. And this is a post-capitalist, because there's no double entry, that immediately works for ecosystems. So instead of having a view of the world where you know what comes in in my entity and goes out in my entity and you don't see any externalities or the ecosystem, suddenly you have every transaction tells you exactly where you are in the network. Right? And then the third form is what I call thermodynamic accounting. Uh, so you'd have access to these global thresholds and allocations at all the levels that you need to have. So this is called uh, context-based sustainability, I think. And so you're a region, a bioregion, you're a local co-op or even a you know corporation, and you would actually also know, you know, what you can do within planetary boundaries. So how can we provision for human needs without exceeding planetary boundaries? So technically, this is possible. This is actually already there's various uh, accounting systems that you know working on this. But what is missing is the interest of the elites with investment to be interested in this at this stage of history, right? But you see the, the idea, once if, if you would reform the world and society as if nature matters, as if the commons matters, then the kind of technology you would look to would not be the same kind of technology as we look for today. So that's what um. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and and um, the interplay between what is possible, what is desirable, what gets realized because the right kind of incentives are there, uh, is a very rich interplay. Where of course we never are smart enough to find the perfect solution to these complex uh, systems. Um, yeah. Uh, both in our personal lives, uh, we make uh, compromises that uh, diminish uh, our state of health or personal yeah. satisfaction, uh, our um, uh, greed and selfishness um, collide with 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 our desire to empathize with with the plight of of others. Um, the um, the, the 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 nations nation states today dominating uh, the regulatory environment uh, that uh, is the basis uh, of uh, the economic uh, and and social incentives uh, that yeah. uh, form form societies are themselves uh, both uh, myopic uh, and uh, aspire to be the moral leaders and examples both for uh, their their citizens and for the rest of the world in in a in a, in a proud patriotism that uh, is uh, really not justified in in practically any any occasion and any case um and 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 the the accounting approach is 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 pretty interesting because of course uh the um, uh, the way that we are accounting for um uh, value basically uh, and and decide whether value is being created or destroyed uh, is uh, indeed something that is not a natural law uh, uh, unless we are looking at it uh, from a basic Darwinian point of view uh, where no, the this is, this is what we call the value regime right we decided yeah. in the 17th century that the only value we would recognize in our type of society would be scarce commodity value, whether it's a thing or labor power. Um, so that's kind of what rules the logic of our what is value, what is not value. And I think what we need and what is already happening, in my view, is a contributory regime, not, not a commodity regime, but a contributory regime. So if you look at work, we, you know, this is a, a book that I'm actually reading right now, which I really recommend. It's Jason Moore, Capitalism and the Web of Life. Right, and he talks about the way that capitalism works in two two different things at the same time. So one is what he calls the commodity circuit, which is you know buying and selling things and becoming more competitive in, in this sphere. But the other thing was what he called the appropriation of nature, that we 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 are always finding new things to take out of the earth. Uh, exactly. Uh, wow. <laughs> 
Uh, and um, I mean, this is a dream what I'm seeing with with your conversation. I've always dreamt of you know having somebody doing this and you're doing it. This is fantastic. And so the um, so what communities are discovering is that you know once you start working in in terms of peer production, which means you have an open and free system where people can freely add their contributions or not, like in open source production, in urban commons, etc. So once you have that thing emerging in the world because of our technology, so them are agreeing with you here that technology made something possible. So then the issue is, you know, how can we have fairness in our communities? And so then what you do is you switch to a contributory regime. So we want to recognize all the value which enriches our commons. And so what people are doing is a bit what monasteries were doing in you know very early on, which is you create a boundary between the external society and the internal society. And so all the income that comes from the outside is refiltered in a different way internally. Um, and so a lot of uh, you know crypto communities and, and urban commons communities are doing exactly that. They're deciding themselves how they will spread you know the wealth in their own context and they're and they're becoming autonomous in doing this using you know new types of tools this is what i call contributory accounting but also it's connected with intelligent cryptocurrencies and i'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the arthur brock who says you know it's not currency it's current dot c's so in other words what we have to do in a network society is to develop the ability to see the streams and the flows uh and that's that's the problem today is a nation state cannot do that a nation state you know sees fixed things in their territory um and this is maybe half what is happening the other half is invisible to them which are all the flows of knowledge and wealth sharing that are now happening through these internet works and this is where I see the problem today is that we don't have institutions that, you know, take care of this new new layer. And so the old layer is no longer fully capable of dealing with the challenges uh, that are now meta-local and, you know, at the level where the, the nation state uh, is is not fully able to respond. And and uh, we see that in, in many different ways. Uh, uh, on one hand, the um, real state of panic at the emergence of global digital currencies uh, where the nation state believes that uh, if they lose control, the world is going to end. And, and they yeah. don't understand that it is an evolutionary phase that they did have control for a while. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was no central bank controlling uh, the monetary right. system. And why there should be in the 21st century, maybe in the second half, there is no uh, natural law saying that. Uh, another uh, clear uh, demonstration uh, is, of course, uh, the pandemic itself, where basically no nation has been able uh, to uh, put in place uh, the measures that would uh, uh, manage uh, the pandemic in a in a manner that uh, that uh, fulfilled their mission of protecting the citizens of uh, uh, giving uh, basis for uh, uh, thriving economically and organizationally, etc. And 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 of course, the most important, I think, uh, example uh, of of the nation state having run uh, uh, its course is is how the Paris Accord. Uh, over yeah. uh, uh, over our uh, climate and and uh, the desire of of maintaining a climate that uh, is suitable for for human biological human life is something that somebody can just say oh you know what I'm opting out I, yeah, well, I I'm, I'm I'm less I'm less uh, sure of this as as what you just said so so obviously you know the what, what i said and and you obviously agree with this is that the nation state is not capable of of doing a certain number of things and so what we need is not more international we also need transnational and translocal uh but i don't think we have anything right now that can replace the functional uh role of the state 
So this is where I'm, I, I'm not a libertarian, I'm not an anarchist. I actually believe that we need institutions for the common good at the territorial level. Um, and so what we see today, but I, I think it will fail, uh, it might bring some advantages. We actually see a revival of the nation state, right? And I, I would argue slightly differently than what you said about COVID because COVID shows this in my view and it shows the opposite of what it, you, you said in my view, which is, you know, I live in a country where there only have been 53 people who, are, who died from COVID. And you look at Taiwan, you look at Hong Kong, you look at Singapore, even Korea, where, you know, you said it was the second one. Uh, they've all succeeded actually in, you know, so we are, we are the level of mortality, which is 200 times smaller, relatively speaking, than the European and especially the neoliberal Anglo-Saxon countries. If you look at the countries who completely fail, it's the US, it's England, it's Brazil, right? And so these are particularly like nihilistic, um, you know, so-called populists, because they actually don't do anything for the people. Um, and on the contrary, I mean, this is, you know, my progressive friends might not appreciate what I'm saying here, but, you know, you look at Poland and Hungary. Um, I just read a study where it said that the bottom third of the population was best off in Europe in, at this moment in Hungary and Poland, um, because these regimes, they're on the right, they're, you know, relatively xenophobic, and I don't support that, but what they're doing is they're actually taking care of their population in terms of, like, you know, if you have four kids in Hungary, you actually have like a basic income for the rest of your life. Uh, uh, some would say they yeah. are buying votes. Yeah, but that's what politics is about. It's about creating coalitions. So I've, what you see is, you know, for me, the, the big mistake that Trump made, if you like, and, you know, I'm like uh, absolutely not in that uh, camp, but uh, is that he didn't keep his promises. You know, he could have been much more clever as a, you know, right-wing populist um, and, you know, protected the the workers that he said he was going to protect, and he didn't. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the ways that, you know, he's going to lose is because he, he his kind of uh, promises were really empty uh, and he's kind of a small, in my view, like just a predatory force. Um, talking about that, uh, uh, one of the reasons why um, libertarian market-driven um, uh, ideologies, in, in my opinion, uh, are, are suboptimal is because they can only discover local maxima in the search for solutions. They don't have the ability to raise their uh, gaze, right. look out right. the broader horizon yeah. and say, actually we can aspire to something better and, yeah. and similarly to biological evolution um they are lazy in grabbing the first and then sticking with it and unless really forced uh, by an existential yeah, yeah. threat but you know we we need institutions that's that's my point so um you know you mentioned the middle ages which is i i'm kind of fascinated by the by the spirits and I, i'm a bit of a neo-medievalist in some ways because so if we look at the history right rome rome was a centralized empire right what an empire does is it pacifies the territory in its control so you know crime and violence enormously goes down inside the circle and then it exports the violence to the the exterior and so when it collapsed you know, you have centuries of strife. Uh, you know, the, the European history uh, after the fifth century is like, you know, just uh, endless wars between uh, kingdoms and small smaller territories. Uh, but when it settles down, you really have an example of a decentralized uh, society. You know, in, in, in the Middle Ages, uh, I mean, you had feudalism. It wasn't based on territory. It was based on fealty, right? So a territory could be very distributed. Um, but what held it together was actually the ideology of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And everything in the city was based on contracts. So it's kind of the ideal libertarian situation uh, uh, existed at the time. Everything was based on contracts. Everything was based on privileges. 
and these privileges were were based on the strength that you could exert vis-a-vis -vis the other forces. And I'm, I, you know, I'm not saying this is an ideal uh, situation at all, but it's, it, you know, if you look from the 11th to the 14th century, it was, you know, pretty well functioning, high level of civilization uh, in Western Europe. Um, and then, uh, in the 16th century, it became nation, nation or uh, centralized cooperation, nation states again. And I think now we're moving back to the idea. And this is, you know, with wave pulse theory, right? You have a polarity centralization uh, that collapses you have distribution uh, when that collapses people think oh we need to centralize they, so we went to centralize and now that we see that centralization is not working people are dreaming of distribution and decentralization this is what the libertarian moment represents is this kind of utopia uh, that you know since centralization doesn't seem to work we have to go towards this decentralization and and I think what we need to do is more about hybrid forms so the current system i would characterize as capital state nation it's driven by capital the state is at the service of capital and then we have the nation which is kind of the communal aspect of our societies that you know we have solidarity within the nation what i'm suggesting is the commons is at the core around the commons you have regenerative market entities so that they are not extractive and not degradative, but actually regenerative vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, uh, the commons. And so I call it entrepreneurial rather than entrepreneurial, uh, because the etymological root of entrepreneurs means taking in between. Uh, and so the idea that I have is, can we develop business forms around these commons, these shared resources we all depend on, that can actually enrich the community and the natural resource base, right? So, so rethink uh, corporations and co-ops in, in a regenerative sense. And as you spoke about accounting and incentives, I just want to mention one project, which I also think is very interesting, which is the economy for the common good. So this is Christian Felber, and it's a whole movement in Europe with 10,000 members and 2,000 organizations that practice it already. So this is, he looked at all the European constitutions and what he found was the following. All the European constitutions say that the economy should serve the common good. So there is nothing in the constitution which says that the economy should serve a private corporation. So he says, well, if we, if we believe that the common good is not just metaphysical, we, we actually can find agreements between people where, you know, 96% of the people will agree that this is what the common good represents. And so they did that exercise and then arrived at 17 clusters of impact. Uh, and so this is, I call this outside in incentives because what, what you could do is, you know, as a state, as a region, you could say, okay, we have an investment in creative economy, for example. Well, we will support more those entities that have good impact overall. And we will support less those entities that have very low positive impact, right? So you'd still have cooperation, you still have cooperatives, but the logic of their operation would have to conform to societal priorities. Um, and so you'd still have a CAO, but if he has to be positive on those impacts, it's not going to be the same type of CAO that we have now, right? So, so what you're doing is you're using these incentives outside to force an adaptation inside these entities. I think this is a very fruitful way of, of thinking, and I, I hope you know this is the kind of thing we will be experimenting with. Um, you you mentioned uh, an interesting uh, expression when you described the situation of uh, crypto um, uh, practitioners in in Chiang Mai at the beginning of our conversation. You labeled them as uh, the uh, labor uh, aristocracy. Aristocracy, yeah. Uh, and uh, the reason why it, it struck me as an expression is because one of the um, forces of, of technology as it evolves is to democratize access to certain functions and certain ways of, of being that were extremely elitary at the beginning 
and then it, they become accessible to yeah. everyone. One of the um, examples is the mobile phone that was very expensive to be uh, a symbol uh, of UP uh, success uh, in New yeah. York in the 90s as you were uh, laying on your Ferrari uh, and you were frying your brain with a brick uh, that cost uh, $15,000 to buy and, and it lasted 10 minutes of conversation, but everyone was admiring you and how successful uh, Wall Street trader you were or whatever the ideal was at the time. Uh, and today, uh, literally everyone has a phone, including poor farmers in 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 Thailand or uh, fishermen in Indonesia yeah. who are emancipating themselves thanks to the democratizing force of uh, uh, mobile communications. So with respect to the future of work uh, and, and labor, one of the common threads today, which I think is profoundly uh, misplaced and, and, and misunderstands the role of technology, is the fear of artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation. Because the common assumption is that uh, uh, the, the, that labor is a, a finite entity, the finite volume of, of work is available. So if uh, robots take it, there will be less left for people to do. And instead, um, I believe that what we are seeing through crypto in Chiang Mai is just the beginning of a transition where uh, with the help, not uh, uh, because it destroys or attacks, but with the support and help of AI and automation, increasing numbers of people, hopefully everyone sooner or later, uh, is going to be able to participate uh, in a kind of new way of, of, of uh, existing uh, where your passions and talents and aspirations are the primary driver of what you do and not the economic incentive. Yes, so I, I want to say something very important about this and, and, and I want to take a historic analogy. So in the 16th century started what we call the process of enclosures, right? This is where so in the, the medieval peasants had their own little plot of land. Then they had the, the land of the Lord. They had to work on it and, and give half away. And then they had common land. This is where the word commons comes from. So there was there were areas where all the people in the village could you know, graze their cows and take herbs. And, and so this was called the commons. And so this was enclosed and privatized uh, in the 17th century, maybe a bit before. And so all these people were chased away of the land and, and arrived in the cities and became labor and the working class, right? But what you shouldn't forget is that if you look at 1840 in the UK, the average worker lived around 31, 32 years old. Uh, whereas a farmer lived like 55, you know? Uh, I, I, I was listening to a podcast where this French historian was saying, so this is in 1830, 10,000 miners in Lille, in the northern uh, France, um, or I don't know how many, I think, but they had 10,000 kids. That's the thing, 10,000 kids. They didn't even have housing. They lived in caves. And 10 years later, only 600 kids were still alive, right? So what I'm saying is, um, so the positive side of looking at what you just said is that what technology does, it frees resources, right? because all these people no longer have to work in the countryside because those people no longer have to work in factories or, or uh, offices. What it does, it frees an enormous amount of human energy to do something else. And this is the positive side. So I, I'm like you, I don't believe that AI in itself is the issue. Uh, but there are some other issues, which is that you know this AI is owned by private corporations don't feel responsible for the results of this. And right now the social movements are very weak. And, and so this is what is happening and COVID has accelerated this. We have, we're facing a very fast impoverishment of middle classes and working classes in the Western world and, and elsewhere. But, uh, you know, this is, you see the economic consequences of COVID. This is going to be a very rapid acceleration of a downward trend. 
and you know my view is that's why we need politics so we need to find redistribution mechanisms and that's why actually a lot of ceos in, in silicon valley actually agree with this right that's why they talk about the basic income because within capitalism i'm sorry to say you know if you become very productive and you make a lot of profit but if nobody can buy your products it's it's your problem too right yeah absolutely and, and so and so what I kind of, my reproach to the classic left is that they're stuck in their Keynesian welfare state vision. And they just dream of recreating, you know, the, the 60s and the 70s. Um, and I think we need something else which recognizes also the positive side. And the positive side of technology is what we've been talking about. We now have a class of people, highly educated with ideals, and they want to do passionate and meaningful work. And they can do so in a way which is no longer fit within the classic idea of a job. So it's it's not a distribution of labor, it's a distribution of tasks. And I'm sure you and I, we work that way, right? We do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but what, what brings it all together is that we have a vision of where we're going. And so our little tasks, uh, you know, we, we know where it's going but it's not a job. I don't know, maybe you're different, but I don't have a job, right? Well, yeah, that's and right. So we, what we need to find, yeah, what we need to find is a system of social solidarity which fits that new situation. And so I give you one example, which I like. Um, so I work for, I had a three-year contract with smart.coop and this is a really interesting system, which I, I want to briefly explain how it works. So as a freelancer, I become a member of the co-op and they will take care of my invoicing and they will charge four and a half percent. This is called a factoring fee, but because it's a co-op, this factoring fee will then fund the co-op and all the services that they can develop for the membership. The next step is after six months, they have an algorithm that calculates how much you can pay yourself on a regular basis. So then you have two accounts, your accounts where you know, all your money coming from your clients, and then you pay yourself a salary. And so what they're doing is they create a salary for freelancers. And it they, they connect with the social welfare system in Belgium. And so even though I'm a freelancer and I have the full freedom of choosing my clients, I'm also protected. I have unemployment. I have free medication, free education. Uh, so this is, I think, a very ingenious uh, hack. And they call it autonomous workers. So, you know, using the best of the old system without destroying the freedom of the new. And um, you mentioned uh, that... I, 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 you, you mentioned politicians um, and, and, and politics and, and policies. Um, I, I'm not, I don't want to ask whether we see the kind of leadership, uh, both the ability of corralling uh, consensus and the thought leadership of uh, articulating uh, inspiring visions of the future because I don't believe we are, we see either of those. Uh, and, and, yeah. and, and, and maybe you can, you can provide examples to the contrary, but I am, I'm not aware of them. Um, how are we going to adopt the new system? Uh, when, when, when Churchill quipped that democracy is the worst kind of uh, government except every other kind, we thought he was joking, but he launched a challenge that for the past 70, 80 years, nobody had the courage of, of taking on in order to design and to uh, popularize an alternative system strong enough for it to be adopted. So how are we going to get there? So my strategy is the following. It's... So we, we have to start by strengthening the autonomous sphere of globally internetwork commons. So this, if you create an open source project or you create an urban commons, which is more local. Um, so 
you create, first of all, the commons itself, which is an open, productive, contributory community. Then you think, okay, how are, going to make a, how are we going to fund this and how are we going to make a living of this? And so what you do is you start creating generative economic entities. And um, so this creates an economy around the commons, but a generative economy around the commons. Uh, what they also do is they create new institutions to manage the infrastructure of cooperation. So I call these four benefit associations. So typically, if you look at open source, you see the community of contributors. You see the companies working around the open source uh, software. But you also see the Linux Foundation, the Drupal Association, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is, for me, like a seed form of a new potential new form of economy. Uh, so the only thing that happens in open source is that the companies that you, that work with open source are rarely generative. They usually are, you know, normal private companies. But so I've proposed things like the uh, copy the copy fair license. To, to so so you have an entity that has to make a living around you know this shared resource. And you want to have a generative economy. So how would you how would you create that? The problem that I see with classic open source copyleft is that, and I, I know this sounds provocative to an American audience, but I'll say it anyway. They're communist licenses. Everybody can contribute and everybody can use, including the you know the the big the big companies, right? Um, and it seems to work for free software, but it's very problematic once you start producing material things because you know you're you're going to be a co-op, you're going to investing in open hardware, and then before you know it, some big company steals everything, and you know you don't have the financing to to survive. So what is reciprocity copy fair? It's we keep the knowledge flowing as in open source, but we make commercialization conditional on reciprocity. So what I want to do is to create entrepreneurial coalitions of entities that work with and for the commons that are both commercial because you know they want to create livelihoods but they also want to maintain the commons they depend on and then you look at the world of capital and here what i propose is what i call reverse co-optation uh, and the word the word i use which is not for me but it's it's transvestment so investment is using capital to obtain more capital and transvestment is using capital to create more commons so there is a value transfer from one system to another uh, so the first time i heard about this was lumio from inspiral in new zealand where they had an investment for lumio but they guaranteed that lumio would stay open source they paid off the investment five percent a year but after 10 years they you know they basically thank the investor uh, but they have strengthened their open source product in in what they feel is a non-exploitative way so this is what i'm looking at so imagine an autonomous a new autonomous sphere relatively autonomous sphere of commons oriented peer production that is growing bit by bit in your society and then the next step is and this is where we might not agree with each other, but I think this is still essential is how do you get political support? Because there's a whole regulatory regime that is designed for another purpose. And I think at this stage, it's the local level. So I see urban, urban uh, entities, cities working together to create what I call global open design depositories or protocol co-ops. So what is a protocol co-op? Let's say you want to do something like Airbnb or Uber, but in a less extractive way, right? So instead of just regulating Airbnb, which is actually, maybe you follow this, this is happening now on scale with COVID that you know cities are taking back control and, and creating regulations against both. But what I want is more a positive thing is, okay, let's, let's do fair BNB. Let's do money right, right? Exactly. And so with that, uh, you then create a coalition of cities allied with, with ethical finance, with generative finance, with impact finance, allied with these local communities, and you make these open depositories which can be used everywhere in the world. So what you have is a global governance model 
which is translocal, transnational, but is not an emanation of the nation state. You bypass the nation state and you've created something that is translocal, transnational, but still has governance. It still has, you know, kind of city power behind it. Uh, and that's, that's what I see as the strategy. And, and, and of course, it will be fascinating to see how these experiments play out, especially where the nation state is going to realize how important they are and it will want to exert control over them. But exactly because they have become important and powerful, that control may not be possible in well, a way. You have to see it like the guilds in the Middle Ages, right? So the guilds in the Middle Ages, um, you know, are strong enough uh, to make deals with the counts and the dukes and, and the kings. Uh, and for about three centuries, they self-managed their cities. A, a medieval city was a commune, was the name they used. And it was a free commune because the guilds, a coalition of guilds, you know, managed the, uh, the local affairs in agreements with the church and the king. And they were powerful enough to defend the freedoms of their, you know, they were based on charters, right? Yeah. And and that's, there's no way around it. If we're not powerful, we won't get anywhere. And this is my critique on the more utopian, purely horizontalist uh, movements within the commons who think, you know, uh, if we just talk together and create assemblies and, you know, and, 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 and no, I think we need to really engage with the institutional world and, and, and create a form of power where, we, where we, this vision of the world can also then be advancing. Uh, at this stage, I, I don't think we're strong enough to do anything at the nation state, but I think we're already strong enough because we have a tenfold increase in urban commons in Europe in 10 years, right? So, okay, it's only two or 3% of the population, but two or 3% of the population can already make a difference. And especially uh, if the uh, trend uh, keeps going, yeah, uh, it it will further multiply not linearly but uh, exponentially. Yeah. Uh, yeah, see what happens with COVID. You know, the with COVID, what we, we see is a. So if if you look at you know complex adaptive systems, so they have a stable uh, period and then they start fragmenting and you know disassembling, and that's that's what we're living now, right? Uh, the the BLM movement, the COVID, all of these things are signs that the the old system is disintegrating and and that's not a pleasant uh, process um, um, but at the same time this creates room where people say oh we have to do things differently so they start experimenting more they start looking for alternatives more and so in that sense if you look at it from the point of view of the imaginal cells you know the the cells in the caterpillar, which are going to become the butterfly, then you don't see the chaos. You see the possibilities of creating the successor system, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's why people like me, we we try to uh, keep our optimism because we are we look not just the things that are going wrong right now, but we look at at the vision that inspires us to you know to continue working and to to make a, trans, a more successful transition. And I fully agree with you, we, we can be utopian in this. There's no guarantee we will succeed, but I'm gonna make a deal with you, like a, a, a wager. You know, I, I bet that not 100% of humanity is gonna die, right? <laughs> uh, and well, so, and, and so then, who, so who, yeah. the, the the universe uh, really care about it because we are not seeing other technological civilizations, and we are asking ourselves, why yeah. is that? Where is the great filter? What is uh, stopping uh, our curiosity and exploration from swarming out? So yeah. I, I I I really want to be on the same side of the wager with you. Uh, so that uh, so that the transition. We want, we want to be there to see who's won the wager. <laughs> <laughs> Michel, this has been a wonderful uh, conversation, and and I and I thank you very much for uh, sharing your your ideas and wisdom with uh, our viewers and and listeners. And uh, I hope to have you back on uh, searching for the question live soon. 
Thank you so much. It was very pleasant uh, and very, you know, stimulating questions. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so uh, thank you very much, everyone, for uh, watching, searching uh, for the question live. Uh, you can um, suggest uh, new guests and vote on the guests suggested by others uh, coming uh, to the URL that uh, you see on the screen. Um, I also have a, a, an Italian uh, YouTube channel. If you go to davidorban.com slash YouTube Italiano, you can uh, subscribe to that. Uh, and um, as uh, before, uh, if uh, you like uh, the content that uh, together with my team I create, uh, please uh, become a fan, a supporter, uh, uh, a sponsor, or a benefactor uh, on uh, patreon.com slash David Orban. So uh, thank you very much. And uh, I will uh, see you at the next episode of Searching for the Question Live. Mm -hmm.